Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 54. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. We have a wonderful juggler on this episode, one of my favorites, the amazing and talented Gina Schwarzman Christiani. But before we get to talk to Gina, we have to thank our sponsors. Let's start with the IJA. That stands for the International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Let's also thank Zing Toys for picking up the Zing Dama. I invented the Ring Dama, and they created the LED version that they call the Zing Dama. Those are available at Walmart, Amazon.com, or Zing.com. Be part of the Zing Dama revolution. Get yourself a Zing Dama today. And in a few weeks, we'll have a new product coming out. I compiled a book of tips called 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Performing Your Act for jugglers and other variety performers. That'll be out in a few weeks. Hope you'll enjoy that. It is just what it says, 1001 tips for your act, for your career, for your life. All right, no more rambling, no more preamble. Let's talk with Gina Schwarzman Christiani. I'd like to welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 54, my special guest, Gina Schwarzman Christiani. Welcome, Gina, how are you doing today? Hello, Daniel. I am very well, thank you. What's it like in Florida? Is it cold? It's pretty cold here in the Bay Area. It was a little bit cold, but it's it's lovely now. It's just summer, basically, as it always is. <laughs> yeah, I also I believe in the coasts are the best place to live. I'm in California. I'm not sure why anybody does snow. Are you the fan of the snow? Well, I'm from Russia, so I love the snow. I miss the snow every. I miss the four seasons, and every time it's winter time and. I see people posting Facebook pictures of snowflakes and how they play with the snow, and it makes me really, really sad. But then I remember about fourth, fifth day, I'm about done with it. And Florida is a wonderful place to live. It's really, really beautiful. And for a juggler, you know, you can practice outside if you need to any time of the day, basically, except for the hurricane season. And our last hurricane season was terrible was absolutely horrific it was it was irma we had irma watching the news it was catastrophic damage everything is going to be wiped out we're all going to die and thankfully we were okay um our house any damage or anything but it was definitely a nervous week did you think about evacuating were you ever in danger that way well you know by the time that we were told it's going to be really bad it was too late because we had really bad traffic and it was basically do we go to shelter places or do we risk evacuating and get stuck in traffic and then being in the car while Irma hit is definitely a terrible place to be in. So we decided to stay and uh, our sh- uh, the shelters that our city has was fine because it can withstand Category 5 storms. And we actually stayed with a friend of ours. She has bears. She has circus bears. Oh. So her house and like the, the roof that she has for her house can withstand a lot of different uh, sense of hurricanes, so we were fine. And do you have contact with the bears? Are you allowed to pet the bears and hug the bears, or are they, are they too dangerous? Definitely too dangerous. So we just looked at them from far, and they are adorable. <laughs> so I remember one time I got to visit Tony Fercos, and he has the big cats, you know, the big tigers and mm-hmm. lions. And to actually pet one and to be backstage and pet a tiger, or was it a lion, I forget, was a thrilling experience to me. You were allowed to do that? Wow. Lucky you. Yes. He said to approach it from, he said approach it from the back, and I thought that was a good idea. Because so, <laughs> as a juggler, my hands are kind of important to me. Uh, yeah, kind of. 
And his brother actually has a tiger scar uh, on his face. Uh, wow. Ferdinand Furcos. Really? On him, on him, it looked cool. So uh, it was a very cool tiger scar. <laughs> if you ever meet Ferdinand Furcos, you'll see the dangers of uh, training animals up close. Oh, sure. Absolutely. You know, my father had horses, and he was a, a horseback juggler. So I remember him having a couple of different horses. He was basically your trainer. Can we talk about your upbringing in Russia and what it was like being trained by your father? And what was your earliest memory of juggling? Sure, absolutely. My earliest memory of juggling was my father juggling. He was a horseback juggler. And also, after he no longer had horses, he performed juggling as a soloist. So he used to have an act where he juggled all the different kind of props. And then surprisingly enough, he cut all of those incredible props out and he just had an act with three balls, which was incredible. Hmm. And uh, to this day, I do not see the same tricks as he did. So definitely, definitely a special memory that I have of him performing that act. And do you ever try to juggle on the back of a moving horse? That must be incredibly difficult. It was so much more difficult than I thought. (laughs) I mean... My father would do it with such ease, and I would get up on the horse, and I could barely gracefully sit and and then let alone stand and juggle five, six. That's what he used to juggle instead mm. of clubs. So, yeah, that's uh, – but, you know, I never, I, I never really trained to do that because by the time that I started juggling, my father no longer had horses. Performing in the circus with a horse is a lot more difficult than just, you know, my little luggage bag with all my props in it, and I can travel the world with it without – lugging an enormous horse behind me. <laughs> and what age did you start training? I started training at the age of six. And what was that initial training like? Was it was it very regimented, or did he allow you to sort of discover juggling on your own and kind of see if you liked it first, or was it kind of a given that you would juggle? You know, a little bit of both. My mother was a gymnast, and my father was a juggler. They both kind of combined their knowledge, and they gave me a couple of different options. So I could be an aerialist, even though my mom didn't really want me to be, which is totally fine because I'm afraid of heights. So I pleased her with that one. I used to do gymnastics. I used to do acrobatics and contortion, and I started practicing juggling at the age of six. And at first, I do remember it being difficult. I don't think my hand and eye coordination was superb at the age of six, which I can understand because my son, Mace, is six, and he is not fully there yet. But with time, I became better and better and better. And what really inspired me were all the incredible VHS jugglers, uh, or jugglers on VHS at the time. So I would watch them for hours every day. Who would you see? Well, who were some of your favorites at that time? So my father had a student, Sergei Zabalotny, and this guy was fantastic. And he used to spin hats, which is which is what I do also. And he was great with balls and with clubs and with sticks, even though his act was primarily just hats. So he inspired me a lot. Obviously, my father did, not only in juggling and in trick-wise, but my father was a really great showmanship. So... I hope to think that I got my stage presence from him. He was great. I used to watch Eva Vidish. Mm-hmm. She was something for me because the first time that I've seen her, I was like, what? There's a female juggler? Because at the time, I only saw male jugglers. Most mainly jugglers are male, even still. <laughs> but uh, I saw her and I said, I absolutely want to be her when I grow up. 
she was so glamorous from her costumes to the rhinestones on her clubs to her presentation on stage. It's just so beautiful and glamorous. That definitely kept me juggling even in the days where I felt like I was not improving at all. Yeah, she was a great juggler. In fact, she even won uh, the Rastelli Award competing against male jugglers many years ago. But I remember she had a wonderful mm-hmm. act with umbrellas and uh, very classy, Yes, very long legs and wore a very glamorous sort of a circus-inspired outfit. One of my favorites as well. Very, yeah. very uh, If people haven't seen her who's listening to this podcast, Eva Vida, which is uh, B-I-D-A, is a very well uh, worth your time to take a look. Classy. Do you ever see, yes, you see each other's like Brun or Cremo or other of the, the, the legends at that time? Oh, all of them. I saw all of them. Too many to name, but I will, of course, name my idol, Francis Brun. He was basically everything to me even still and I remember I went through this phase which lasted years where my costume mimicked his I was all in black but lots of rhinestones of course it was a turtleneck and sleeve and instead of the pants that he wore I had a skirt and uh gosh I used to I used to make costume (laughs) costume after costume of the same style and I absolutely adored it now when you trade as as a child was it regimented? Was it sort of like a certain time every day, a certain amount of time per day? What was the early training like? Hmm. I think that when I was about six, six, seven, eight, it wasn't too, too strict. But I also did other things other than juggling. I used to do contortions and gymnastics and some ballet. But after I turned, let me see, after I turned about 10, 11, that's when my practices started to become serious. And every day I used to practice from three to four hours. And then when I joined Ringling, which was my first circus, I used to practice many, many hours. I think that's when I became first aware of you because you were about about 13 or so. And they had you start, I think they had you before the show or you were center ring, but you had your own spot, which I thought was very impressive. In Ringling? Yeah. How'd that come about? So I... Well, I think that uh, you remember me in the middle ring, uh, probably because I did a little, a little um, like clown uh, gag type of thing. Mm. Uh, but that was after my act. I, I performed in ring one. I got you. And I thought that was the coolest place because ring three was closer to the curtain. And so there was always kind of like that space, uh, that gap of people. But during one, I was, I, I felt surrounded by uh, the audience, which was pretty intimidating uh, being my first circus. But uh, I loved it. It was, it was thrilling, fantastic. You know, Ringling was my first circus and it made me grow up fairly quickly because the responsibility of performing for so many people and at the age of 12, 13, 14, so it, uh, it definitely made me grow up quite quickly and realize that I have to practice a lot and be very responsible and perform very, very cleanly every show. So that was, that was my goal that my father had instilled in me. And um, even, even to this day, that's kind of my everything, which is why the name of your podcast should probably be changed, but that's okay. Well, it's obviously, <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek. I know. But speaking about that and speaking about <laughs> dropping, how do you handle the nerves? Did you find that's yourself... Not- did you find yourself nervous and were you able to handle, did you have any, any tools or tips you can share with our listeners on how to handle their nerves? Everyone has nerves, everyone, and including myself, absolutely. But I think that practice gives you the confidence to go out there and remind yourself that you have done this trick or sequence many, many times. 
So you have to remember that. And if you feel a little iffy about it, just go back and, and practice some more. I also do not put tricks into my act that I'm not 100% sure about. So basically, if you do a trick rehearsing 10 times super cleanly, I think you're about ready. I agree. I think preparation trumps nerves. I think if you go in feeling like you're sketchy or feeling like you're unsure or unconfident, you'll be nervous. Right. If you go in excited about just displaying what you're, you know you can show people, I think I like what Paul Ponce said, where it was about once you get to the stage, all you should think about is the entertaining of the people. It should be about dropping. That should be left mm -hmm. behind. That should be left in the practice room. So for me, I like to be just really well prepared. Oh, sure. Well, well prepared is, is practicing. And if you're confident in the trick, that means that you're going to go on stage and perform for the people and not really think about the tricks so much so that uh, you have the combination of you're performing and you're nervous or maybe you didn't practice enough. Like all of those feelings have to be left behind. So if you're not sure of a trick, just go back and practice it. And it's okay if to cut a trick in a, in a performance because I think that it's very important to be a cleaner juggler as opposed to being super, super risky and putting tricks that you're not sure of in the act, even though that is also very necessary because ultimately that's what we end up doing is putting is risking and putting um, difficult tricks in our act. I know I've said this before, but this has always been my take on juggling and dropping is that the audience usually doesn't know a good juggler from a bad juggler, but they know a bad juggler drops. Like they know that's bad. I personally hate to drop. I am not a big dropper. And uh, I always say that uh, I'll drop when they rip the props from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's, that's about me, too, seriously. But I have been told by a couple of different producers where I would have um, performances where I would do super clean. And for a juggler to do super clean is not always easy because there's so many things flying in the air. But I've been told to make a mistake at the end of my act. So the ending trick mm. to my act would be I would be bouncing a ball in my head and I would bounce it really high and I would do a walkover and catch it on my head. And my second walkover would be I would do the walkover and bounce the ball to whoever is assisting me in my act and then turn around and I am done. I love that trick, but I love to do it so cleanly and obviously not drop. And I would sometimes have producers be like, I think you should trip up and mess up terribly and do the second one and catch it cleanly. And I would get, my applause would be double that. I mean, I would get such a, such a much better response than if I would do it cleanly. And it's true. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. I'm not a big fan of the intentional drop. It's, no, I don't know, but but there is something show busy about you missed the first try, you missed the second try, all the tensions on the third try, standing ovation. Yeah, but what if you miss it on the third and fourth try? That's what I say. Like, you, you, it's the worst feeling in the entire world, is it not? That's what I say. I say there's enough unintentional drops. So if I have one intentional right. drop, then the second one's unintentional, all of a sudden I have all the pressure. Like, if I drop, it'll be an accident and... Unless you're so sure, and then it makes so much sense to have a planned drop. Especially towards the end. Yeah. Yes, especially towards the end. My father would say the worst times to drop uh, is in the beginning of the act because it starts you off badly, and then obviously towards the end of the act. But I am surprised I'm talking to you the song about dropping. I hate it. It's like <laughs> my phobia. I don't even talk about it. Well, hopefully this will not uh, have any effect, but I think we can... It's obviously a, a subject that's difficult for jugglers because it's sort of... Absolutely. 
and people don't realize, I think, there's a lot of jugglers now who aren't necessarily performers in the way that uh, some jugglers of the past were, where they would do long contracts, many, many mm -hmm. shows per week, day after day. And sometimes you get up and your neck is cramped or you, you, know, yeah. you had some injury or your shoulder is stiff. And it's very difficult sure. to juggle when you're less than 100% physically. What do you think your most difficult performance was? you ever have a performance that stands out as being extremely challenging that you'd like to share with us? Hmm, let me think about it. Well, I think that um, you mentioned shoulder pain and neck pain and injuries. And I think we've all been there, done that. I tore my ACL and it took me a while to recover. Nowadays, the surgery is I had a friend that walked the next day and then in three days he went skiing and then busted his ACL again so that was brilliant but besides that it was a difficult recovery for me it took me many many months and then I had some knee pain afterwards and that's when I unfortunately cut a whole bunch of gymnastics I used to finish my act with uh, the trick that I told you a, a bit earlier but instead of a walkover it was a front aerial I used to love that trick. It, was, it looked really cool. The audience probably didn't notice it because it was super fast. It looked like a walkover. But it was a front aerial. And I had to stop doing that because that's the trick that I got hurt on. And I just didn't really feel like going back to it. I also never performed in heels because to me it was more important that my knees were safe because I was doing gymnastics. I didn't want to further injure my knee. Even though my idol, Francis Brun, after he watched me perform, I remember him giving me a really nice compliment, which I cannot remember because I was on cloud nine just looking at him. And I normally don't get starstruck, but of course, Francis Braun, come on sure. now. And uh, he's like, yeah, you, terrific act and presentation, good tricks, but you got to put some heels on. My sister wore heels. So I practiced afterwards, and then I realized that I would perform better without them. So what's my heel story? That's sort of a strange comment. I don't mean to put a, a sexual twist on his comment, but... The fact that he felt as a female juggler, you were sort of required to wear heels or that he felt that would mm -hmm. improve your act. Is that something you feel diminishes a female performer, that she sort of required not only to be a great juggler, but also to look a certain way when they perform? Well, I mean, maybe if you put it that way, but, you know, I never really had a negative connotation from what he said. I might be a little biased because I just love him so much. <laughs> but I think that he just, he grew up watching female performers dress the way they do and and female performers like showgirls always always wears heels most especially his sister and she used to do a lot of tricks with her feet like the kickups that i do mm -hmm. and somehow she did it i mean i tried i promise you i tried i practiced many many hours doing that but she got it and uh, to me i felt as though i was just fine without it and i would make these costumes that made my legs look long because this is why female wear heels is that we have a nice posture and long legs and it was more important to wow my audience with my tricks than necessarily with my looks so that's why i was never hung up on it well i'm just saying because nowadays especially there's sort of a culture of and females in show business the, the difficulties that they face that they address especially in sort of a male dominated world did you think it was more difficult as a female performer to excel and succeed as a juggler? Do you feel you were sort of held to a different standard than male jugglers? What do you think about that sort of idea? And do you feel that women should compete against men equally, like, like in the competitions mm -hmm. we have with the IJ or the WGF? I know that's a lot to put on your plate, 
but I have very few female guests simply because the numbers involved in right. the number of male jugglers versus female jugglers. So I'd love to get your perspective on what it's like to sort of be a female juggler in the, in the male-dominated world of juggling. That's a really good question and a bit of a pressure from you to answer it perfectly. But basically, I think that we are no different. I think we female jugglers are, are very strong and we should just compete with the men. Another reason for that, still don't think there are enough female jugglers to have our own um, category. And maybe we don't need one. I think we should just all bunch up and perform. Where I think the differences should be is perhaps a Diablo act with another Diablo act or a club act with another club act. So I think that if we can rate the tricks accordingly and combine them, I think that should do the trick. Of course, there's no separate category at the IIGA. I was more referring to the WJF where you competed, I believe that was in 2004, and you won the mm-hmm. gold medal. But in that situation, they had separate female categories. Is that correct? So I, I don't think I was there that year at the WJF. You know, it was a little while ago, and I can't remember. I need to go find out. But, you know, I don't think so. Because one of my tricks that I was really hoping to win, but Bubba beat me, and to this day, because it was my trick. Oh, I sound like a star loser. But it was three clubs, a three club up on uh, 360s. And so we basically had a minute... And we had to do as many as we can within that minute. And I was really, really close. But he beat me. And I think that it was a fair competition, whether I'm a female or not. I think we missed the name, but you're saying that Volva Galchenko beat you. Right. In a, a 360 competition with a number of, you had one minute to as many 360s as possible. But he also, I think, was mm-hmm. the world record holder for that. Yeah. So to be beaten by him in that category is not simply... Uh, you know, to even be close to him, I think, was a, quite a, quite an accomplishment. Wow, he is fantastic. But uh, he, of course, has not gone on to be a professional juggler, though. He's gone on to be a very successful computer programmer or computer developer. Well, he mastered, uh, mastered one field and decided it was time to master another one. All power to him. He's fantastic. And uh, so is his sister. I think it's also a good choice because I think the career of professional juggler has changed a lot. From maybe the when I started, like in the 80s and 90s, and maybe in your early career as well. It has. Do you feel there was more opportunities for jugglers? Do you think it's diminished over the years? For jugglers, well, I can speak from my entertainment side where I perform a lot in theaters and in circuses. It definitely has changed. I think that with the change of our economy in the last, what, eight, 10 years, producers want more acts from one person and I think that's very unfair I've been asked hey can you do aerial and knowing me absolutely not I cannot do aerial okay well do you have other acts like can you just throw in a hula hoop act I can't but I really don't want to I'm a juggler I've trained all my life for this I'm an okay juggler and well we need more acts to fill up the show for for the price that you want so I I think that uh, performers hear a lot of that well, it's always like the fair circuit now. A lot of it is, what's your walk-around act? Like, not only do you juggle, but you're expected to do stilts yeah. or some kind of character to walk the, the fairgrounds to sort of get the yeah. most bang for their buck. I think also that maybe there's a, bit, a big influence of, of Eastern European performers who uh, came in at a certain point and were willing to work a bit cheaper maybe than some other acts and kind of maybe flooded the market to some degree. Do you think that's uh, had an effect? Yes, I think that did have an effect. I think that if we all could just stick with a budget that we don't undercut each other, 
I think that would help all of us. And I hear that all the time. I hear performers performing for super dirt cheap. I understand that there's a lot of people that don't necessarily care about money. They just do this because it's their hobby or they're just really excited to perform. And uh, it's hard because I want them to enjoy their life, of course. But I also think that if you train your whole life and you invest time and money into costuming and practicing, I think you should ask for a decent uh, wage and not undercut other performers. Now, also, I think it's important to talk about the circus festivals and the competitions. Now, you were a, a winner or a silver medalist at the Festival de Man and the Festival Monte Carlo. How old were you when you did the, the circus festivals? Was that pretty early in your career? I, that was pretty early in my career. Mm-hmm. I, I focused on competitions and went to the one in Italy and China and Budapest. And um, I traveled around performing for Europe and the competition. That was quite an experience. It was very exciting. It was very nerve wracking, but it was super exciting. And, you know, I wanted to add to the conversation that you and I had a little bit earlier about what do you think? What should you think when you go on stage? And no matter whether it's an important show or just in front of a couple of people, you have to remind yourself that you're doing this because you love it because you enjoy it and don't let the overwhelming nervousness of you know the thought whether your tricks are ready or not overwhelm you just you have to keep reminding yourself that you love it and i think that helps me a lot when i do serious shows where i can't mess up do you still love it after all these years do you think your love has diminished or does it get greater as the years go on I absolutely love it. I adore it every single second of it. I love it. I think I appreciate it probably even more now. The last show that I did that was super exciting was I performed alongside of a symphony orchestra. So I had live music. I think it was like a 40-piece uh, instrumental behind me, um, and it was just thrilling. It was exciting. And, of course, you, were, you graced us with your presence at the last convention in Cedar Rapids. What was your experience there like? I know you, you had t- taken a few <laughs> years off coming to the IGA. I hope you had a good experience mm-hmm. this year. Oh, I had such a wonderful experience. Probably really been fun. I think it's, well, it's always exciting going to the IGA and performing for jugglers and practicing with jugglers and learning from other jugglers. It is incredibly inspiring because we get so busy with our lives and uh, my other businesses and, and performing that sometimes you lose track of how much you love it. And uh, going to IGA just fires it up every single time. So I enjoyed it so much. But I have to admit, performing for my peers is nerve-wracking. It's so nerve-wracking. And I have to practice so much, which is fine. (laughs) And you actually did a little different. You sort of put together a special routine. You changed things up because you had won the Award of Excellence, and I I invited you back. In fact, we had a a special patron of the arts, Alan Marwell, who uh, helped you come out and helped your husband and son come out for you to see you get accept the award. So we should thank Alan during this, this podcast as well. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Alan. You came out, you performed very well. You closed the first half, as I remember, thank and you. got you got your reward, your award. And, and hopefully it was a big thrill for you to have your, your son and your husband there as well. It was a super memorable experience. Absolutely. And the fact that I could bring two of my guys to watch me perform, and also accept the Excellence Award, which I never have before. That was my first time. So that was just, it was a very, very humbling experience that my peers think that, that I'm worthy of that. I mean, really, it was just really, really lovely. And I appreciate it to this day, absolutely. 
about performing uh, for jugglers, it was such an interesting performance because whenever you mess up, it's terrible. But then also when you get a really cool trick right and the audiences, the juggling audiences see it, they appreciate it much more than the regular audience. So performing for my juggling peers is, is definitely something. It's very exciting, nerve-wracking, but so well worth it. I think your son who is there has the coolest name ever. Your son's name is Mace. Hey. Is that, a, is that a family name? How, how do you come up with the name Mace, M-A-C-E, for your son? Uh, Mateo found it. Uh, it's uh, old English from the 1400s, and uh, I thought it sounded really cool. Uh, it has a couple of different meanings. A mace, obviously, pepper spray mace, or from the 1400s, mace, the cannonball-looking weapon. And it's kind of funny because I'm a super liberal. I don't like guns, but I, I don't affiliate that with my son, of course. So, but anyway, that's kind of like the origin from, for that name. But I never, I never hear it. It's kind of unique, and I like that. And what would you think about uh, Mace if he just said he wanted to become a juggler? Would that be something you think moving forward that you would encourage as a profession? Or do you feel that there might be better opportunities elsewhere? Of course, it has to decide whether if he loves it, he'll do it, of course. But Well, I think if he decided that he seriously wanted to become a juggler, I think it would be quite convenient because I am here to teach him whatever he wants to know. And that's the kind of luxury slash privilege that I was growing up with. My father is a really, really terrific coach, and not every juggler can teach because it's, it's a whole different art form, not, not only knowing how to juggle, but also to teach it, to relay the message. You have to know how to do that. And my father really did. He knew that I would know how to do tricks way before I knew it. I remember all the time he'd be like, all right, so now you're going to do the same trick twice, or you're going to go from district to district, which is actually a trick. It's very difficult sometimes going from a difficult trick right on to the next one. And he would be sure that I could do it, and I would just trust him, and, and sure enough, he was right. So he's a definitely great teacher, which is why I think it's astounding that people are really great jugglers without be, having needed to be born in the business. You know what I mean? Like there's people that just go to the festival and they practice a lot and pick up tricks and they don't have a trainer and they are just incredible. I mean, I'm astounded watching like teenagers do these crazy numbers and the technical difficulties that they perform with is is amazing. So, which is why I'm also amazed going to different juggling festivals and seeing that. But as far as me teaching Mace, if he wanted to juggle, I am here. If he wanted to become a lawyer or, or something else, I am definitely in support of whatever he'd like to do. Hopefully not a politician. We have enough uh, politicians already out no, there. So. Hopefully, no, no, hopefully <laughs> a, good a one. politician. Hopefully right, right. a good, honest <laughs> politician that could clean up the mess that we're having right now. Don't get me started. It's a difficult time. I know, I know, uh, I don't want to get you started because I know <laughs> actually even on your, your, your biography, it has a costume designer, painter, cake artist, liberal. So that's a big part of, of your identity. But I think we, we share the same views and I don't know if this is the place for it, but it is a difficult environment, I think, also. Because mm-hmm. I don't believe that the arts are supported as much in this environment. That's become sort of exactly. a frivolous type of thing that, that the arts and supporting the arts, uh, NPR or, or public broadcasting or anything considered elitist by certain people in, in entertainment would be eliminated because mm-hmm. it wasn't needed to the bottom line type of thing. What you are saying is exactly right. In fact, our state budget for our theaters have been cut by 
60. That's enormous. And I could just imagine what it is in other parts of the country. And I think it's it's really sad. It's shameful. I think that the arts are so necessary for our society to just not focus on on hardships of every day and work and, and regular jobs. I think that uh, it's very important for us to express ourselves in, in, in artistic ways because that's to me, art is my soul. It's how it's how I see life, and it it helps me. It helps me through difficult situations, and um, from art to performing to painting to juggling, I think it's so important. And you know what? We're going to prevail because of that. I think we're all going to keep juggling. We're all going to keep performing and and making each other happy with showing our craft. Um, so we're gonna get we're gonna get through this. Uh, but it it is difficult because I'm a woman. I'm I'm a refugee. I am a foreigner. Um, and to see that my beautiful country has turned its back on on that is, is very sad. I mean, obviously not the whole country, but the fact that people are in power that look down on homosexuals, on artists, on liberals, on, on people that want this earth to be clean, climate deniers i mean it's it's all pretty it's all pretty terrible but like i said we're all going to get through this uh the only thing that i will add to this is for a while it's been it's it hasn't been hip to be into politics like oh i don't focus on politics i just i just do my own thing and that is very unfortunate because while you're doing your own thing it's more difficult for you to do your own thing, simplistically put. I think everyone should get involved. Everyone should vote. And uh, it's so crucial. And you know what? I think people are starting to understand that. It's time to get out and vote. Well, for me, I don't care if if the market goes up, if our our national parks shrink. It's like, to me, that's where our perspective is wrong. It's it's become very, very much about making money. It's like, well, as long as we're making money and and money becomes sort of the overruling factor, the environment, the, the arts, become secondary to the idea of accumulating wealth. And to me, that's, that's the, the opposite of what the artistic spirit is all about. So Right, exactly. But, I mean, we have a, a combination of, of, of a whole clusterfuck thing going on. I mean, we have the attack on the arts, on equality, basically on everything. I think that the rich are going to become even richer. And I think the poor class is going to have a much harder time because if you take their health care away, uh, if you take Medicaid away, so many important organizations like Planned Parenthoods and Meals on Wheels and different little, little tiny organizations, but actually make a big difference in everyday people's lives. I think it's a whole collaboration of terribleness that we have to come out and rally against and, and protest and again definitely vote that's the role of the artist the, the role of the artist is to let people remember that there's beauty in the world and that there's wonder in the world and magic in the world and sometimes i think that's people right. forget that i mean i've had the experience and i'm sure you've had too where you could be juggling somewhere like i like to juggle mm-hmm. out in public i'll go to the park or wherever and people don't want to see they don't want to even look at you because they feel that mm-hmm. maybe you're going to ask them for money or that you're doing something odd or unusual and they don't want to be mm-hmm. part of you sticking out. Or why are you showing off? Or why, what are you doing? That's not a, an activity that is something that fits into our mainstream reality. <laughs> right. 
And the loss of wonder and magic in the world to me is, is very sad. Do you notice that? I do all the time. I mean, I'm very aware of it. Really? Yes. Oh. I mean, uh, I think it's something that, I don't know. I mean, just the idea of juggling itself, what people think about juggling is sort of a strange sort of idea. Like what do most people think about juggling right. even? Do they, they right. think it's a worthwhile art form? Oh, yeah. Or do they see it as something that they might have at a party if the magician isn't available? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, uh, you know, not speaking negatively, negatively of magicians, uh, but I understand what you're saying. And I think there are people that are like, all right, well, you're an adult. It's time you get a real job. But this is my real job. Right. I can make it or I can't make it. But you know what? I love it and I am happy and I'm not going to spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and become a lawyer. And then all of a sudden afterwards, just open up, open up a, a cupcake place, which happens so often. I am happy and people should do that. Now, as far as people looking down on, on different performers and such, I don't notice that very often. I mean, maybe I'm just kind of in a magical bubble where... Most of the time I get people being like, wow, that's really cool. Like the other day, which is also very embarrassing, but we were in Target and Mace all of a sudden decides that he he thinks I'm the coolest because most of the time it's, stop being me, mom. I want two more cookies and no homework for the rest of the day. But he realizes that I could juggle. And when we go to stores and every time he sees different balls or props and people there, he just comes up to me. He's like, hey, uh, you know, my mom could do that. Can do what? Can juggle. Do you want to see her juggle? <laughs> and they say yes. And he gives me five balls and I have to perform because I have to. And uh, and he loves it. And I do it every time because, he, you know, he's proud of me. And I think that hopefully that'll last probably not until his teenage years. But it's really sweet and magical right now. now that brings me to a question. I know we had talked about this a little before the podcast started. What is it like to juggle when you're pregnant? Like, and what, what's, how many months to long did you juggle? And what did you sort of experience? Was there sort of a, do you think he has memories of you juggling in the womb? <laughs> I do remember performing up until. I mean, were you performing when you were pregnant? Yeah. I was, yes. I, I was performing until I was six months pregnant. And me being a costume designer, I had different kind of sneaky ways where I could hide my getting bigger for as long as possible. Uh, the last performance I did, it was for a charity show that supports uh, elderly circus performers. So it was definitely a pleasure performing. And I performed alongside two other jugglers. And uh, I did five fire torches. And that's how, that's how I ended my act. But the difficulty I remember performing while being pregnant is that I love to do pirouettes. So I would throw a club up and do a triple. I used to do a quad, but it always damaged my shoes, so I stopped doing that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I remember I would lose balance doing that, so I had to trim my triples and doubles to just one. Yeah, the extra the extra mass in the middle sort of slowed you down or threw off your yeah, a little bit. center of gravity. <laughs> we had a, quite a, yeah. a pregnant performer this year. Uh, Bob and Trish Evans oh, yeah? just had their a beautiful baby, too. Oh, that's right. Yes. A really wonderful yeah. uh, family they have now. And uh, I believe they're back in Thailand or they, they tend to travel, mm -hmm. uh, Bob and Trish Evans, and to exotic places to teach and now have a wonderful family. And she had to be about six or seven months or even even more, maybe eight months even, because wow. they had the, the baby about, I think, about a month after the festival. So mm -hmm. 
I think the one thing about, I think we talked about earlier about, you know, people starting young, like you started at six, is like you say, mm-hmm. people, I think jugglers can achieve great feats starting as teenagers, but I think they lack the consistency of, of some of the great performers, like like a Bob Bromson, who started so young, or, or Anthony Gatto. By the time they're teenagers or young adults, just have so many years of experience, like Tai Tojo or someone like that, where... Right. I know I didn't start till I was about 13 and didn't really start as a professional until about 17. And I always envied the mm-hmm. people who, who learned when they were six or seven, just because it was always part of their lives, you know, and it gave them that security, that, that, that confidence. Well, that confidence, that security absolutely comes with just having done it longer than that. Uh, but you know what? I question that sometimes because I see these teenagers that, take juggling up a couple of years before that and they are at one of the highest levels of juggling and it's super astounding to me i was talking to uh shirley dean the other day and which by the way i have to preface saying uh, before i tell you that story she's fantastic and she i have been a fan of hers for years and years and years back when i was in russia i used to watch her and she was other than other than ever Vita, she was the second female juggler that I thought was just just incredible. And she apparently started before she hit professional level. She started just three years before that. So I think that's pretty badass. I like Shirley Dean. She, she of course, is uh, uh, very reminiscent of my favorite juggler of all times, Chris Cremo. I know. So, But I just recently became friends with her on Facebook, and I, I plan to reach out to her. Me too. At a you know at a later date to be on the podcast as well because amazing they're amazing pirouettes and amazing work yes. with the hats I think I think recently I saw her do like a five bounce you know from brim to brim on her on her head with the mm-hmm. hats super classy super clean perfectly in time with the music very difficult too because of uh, very painful have you ever tried that bouncing hats on your head the the I the, yes. I did try that. I also, uh, my father also gave me to practice rings. And after I just beat up my hands, I decided that I never wanted to do it again. And I didn't. And I don't regret that. <laughs> I don't get rings. I don't, I don't like them at all. They always seem to hit me right in that webbing Ugh. between my thumb and my first finger. And I see guys with big splits, like in that part of their oh, hands. Oh, God. Yeah, and I'm like, no, thank, oh, you. thank you. <laughs> that's, that's okay. I'm pass on that. Yeah, yeah, the collar. Yeah, but you know what wrist. happened to me one time with uh, with the club? I was doing one of my favorite tricks where I'm juggling two clubs, and then I throw one really high and spin, and before I catch it, I put a club on my forehead. Mm, yes, I know that trick. And I catch the club on the top with the uh, with the balance, and so I messed up, and that club hit the club that I was balancing and apparently that club that I was balancing the screw I should have fixed it but it was sticking out a little bit so I just busted my forehead open and I bled everywhere delightful that was during a show yeah I I also had another injury during the show it It was in ringling I was twirling my metal baton I just messed up and I and I hit my mouth and I pushed my one of my tooth. I almost knocked it over, but I wore braces, so I kept it. So I hit my tooth, and I it was beginning of the act, and I was bleeding all over. <laughs> but, you know, sport that I am, I sure. wanted to finish my whole entire act. And I didn't really realize that <laughs> it looked like a massacre. I bled everywhere. And my father was trying to get my attention to just, you know, leave. 
I was too busy performing. And after my act, I went to go do a gag with the clowns, and they looked at me. They were just mortified, and they're like, you have to leave. So I left. Yes. I, luckily, I don't think I've ever bled on stage. I remember one time my partner, uh, we, were doing, we were doing a TV show. as a John Lovett's uh, sh- TV show. Yeah. And you, you know what the world's most dangerous food is? Bugs? I don't know. No, it's the bagel. What? More people cut themselves with bagels than almost any other food. <laughs> you mean like cutting it? Yes, like, like cutting the bagel. Oh, it's, it's, a lot of people cut themselves <laughs> by bagels. And, of course, my partner was, was backstage right before rehearsal, and he cut himself with the, the knife, you know, cutting, and he started right. to bleed pretty badly. But we, we were calling oh. rehearsal, and he, like, wrapped his hand. That's horrible. And I remember that the, I think it was the director saying, can we get a gentleman that's not bleeding? Because he was, <laughs> because he was bleeding all over this. It was dripping. Oh, my God. That's terrible. And he had, he had to leave and, and go and actually get it stitched up. But I still remember that. Can we get a juggler to stop bleeding, please? Yeah, sure. We've got, you know, a million jugglers right behind behind stage doors. Well, we actually did bring another juggler in. I think uh, my friend Jim Ridgely. Oh, really? Oh, well, that's convenient. Yeah, because it was just rehearsal, but he, he needed someone to stand in to do the juggling for, for, the, for that day. <laughs> the bagel needs to be cut out, not cut towards you. Exactly, exactly. Nobody's going to do that. I don't do that. Another time, he actually split his eye open with a yo-yo, my partner. So oh, God. I, I, fortunately, I've never had uh, any juggling injuries like that. But uh, I've had some back <laughs> issues, which have been very difficult uh, to deal with a couple of times. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, I'm fine now. I think the most dangerous time is the day after you travel. Because that next morning, there were both, both times seemed to be the day after I traveled. Hmm. And I'd get up and reach for something and, and then throw my back out. Oh, sure. Yeah. One time it happened at the IJ Festival. I was directing the show, oh. and uh, the very first day I was putting my clothes away, and my back spasmed. And the rest of the festival, I was in extreme pain. But oh, that's really terrible. I'm sorry to hear that. I know what you mean. I've also done that, which is why I stopped doing contortions because I don't think humans should do that. And uh, I know I'm going to get my contortions friends writing to me saying, I can't believe you said that. But I've done contortions, and it's just not great for your back. And ever since I stopped, I have last back pain and last uh, neck pain. My other thing is hot yoga. I do the Bikram yoga every day. Oh, the Bikram yoga? Yeah. That's been wonderful. and I've never felt better at my advanced age. Advanced age, whatever. Well, I'll be 56 this birthday, so. I I pass out. I don't like Bikram. (laughs) Now, of course, you have a lot of other interests and a lot of other uh, wonderful talents that we haven't talked about. Oh, thank you. you. You talked earlier about doing your costume when you were pregnant. And I think even as a younger mm-hmm. uh, performer, you were talking about designing your own costumes based on your admiration of Francis Brunn. And you've developed into a tremendous costume designer. And in fact, you've done costumes for entire shows. How did that develop? And was that something you always wanted to do, to be a costume designer? Well, first of all, thank you very much for your compliment. I started drawing when I was probably the same time I started juggling. At age six, seven, I started to draw. And I remember for Christmas, all I wanted was just markers and pencils and paints. And that's all I kept wanting. And that's all I want now. It's exactly what I tell Mateo when he says, what do you want for Christmas? I started drawing and I then started to change my canvases from paper to fabric, to wine glasses. And uh, so I think that my 
love for art just kind of took me everywhere. But about eight, nine years ago, I started to think about seriously putting my art into a business. And a couple of my friends have helped me do that. So though I really love spread that I make costumes and a couple of people ordered costumes and I don't think I even charged them back then just because I was nervous. I, I wasn't sure whether, you know, I was doing it right or whatnot. Uh, and I started just educating myself more and more and more. I always wanted to go to FIT, the design school in New York, but I was traveling, so I didn't want to stop. So I just kind of kept educating myself into making costumes, into learning patterns. And it, that all just started for me. In addition to your costume designing, I've seen some of your paintings in person. I know Alan has a couple of them. Yes. And they are tremendous. Thank you very much. Where can people go online to see your artwork? No, I'm not, I'm not just saying that because if I, if I didn't like it, I just would sort of, I would sort of pass over it quite quickly. Because <laughs> I'm not a person uh-huh. who, who, uh, who is good at, uh, at dishonest flattery. At funniness, oh, I completely agree with you. I, I don't think I'm, I'm greater at it either, especially lately. I think the older I get, the more I realize that I, don't, I just don't have time for funniness or for funny friends. And um, I, I tend to appreciate, you know, people that, that I do know that are genuine. So I, that, that's nothing wrong with not having enough patience to be. <laughs> I remember a friend of mine said uh, when I saw him early in his career, the comment I was, I, I think I said, well, you don't suck completely. Oh God! And he took that as a very as a compliment because he was like, "From you, that's a compliment <laughs> that I don't suck completely." <laughs> so I'm not I'm known as a harsh critic, unfortunately. No, but that's the thing. I mean, you know, if people know you, they take that glass half full. Well, I like to do art myself, so I can I can appreciate it when I see talent. Oh. Yeah, I like to draw and and you know. Very cool. Well, you design too. Which... Well, I design toys. I des- I design toys and things like I like to, but I love to draw. And I'd like to get more into that as, as I get older. And uh, I love to draw jugglers mm-hmm. and, and animals and dachshunds. Oh, really? Wow, same here. I like to do, I, but I'm not really, I haven't done any painting yet. I like to only do colored pencils. I've not advanced enough in my artwork to do paintings yet. Oh, come now, be brave. I will, I will. You can you do acrylics. That's what I do. And the reason why I do acrylics is because they dry so fast. I have to use acrylics because I have no patience any longer. So... <laughs> That's how I can make a painting, uh, you know, dry cooker. I love to paint, and what I paint is usually performers. So I add rhinestones to my paintings and horses and showgirls and jugglers. And there's a really cool gallery here. So if anyone is uh, in Sarasota, where I live, there's a gallery called Gallery uh, Art Avenue Gallery. So a couple of my paintings hang there. It's a very beautiful gallery. So that's cool. And with the best place online, just to go to your website, because I know that you have a, a section on your website devoted to your artwork. Is that the best place to see your work? GinusDesigns.com. I also have an Instagram page. It's Genus Designs, And I'm on Facebook as well. We do some notes at the very end. So that's Gina Designs with an S at the end. So like plural. Genus Designs. And also what's just very interesting is that in addition to being a painter and a costume designer, you're also a cake would you say, is it called a cake designer? How do you... A cake artist? Sure. Cake artist. And you do f- fancy cakes? Would that be for something like for weddings? Or where does one do fancy cakes? My mother-in-law, she's got a really very cool story. Well, I'm the fifth generation of circus performing. And Mateo's circus generation uh, goes up to seven. So they have a very interesting performing background. 
and his mother was a trapeze artist. She used to do an incredible heel catching act. So basically she would swing on the trapeze and would do her somersault and she would catch herself on the trapeze bar by her heels. And at first I would watch the act and I'd be like, wow, that's exciting. But then as I watched it more and more and more, I realized how insane it was. So actually towards the end, I kind of, I kind of couldn't watch it anymore, but yeah, she's an incredible person. So, and she's also a chef and a pastry chef. She works here at uh, Laurel Oaks Country Club. So her and I, we decided to open up a cake business here by appointment only because we don't have time to run a bakery and we don't want to. But yeah, by appointment only, we create these super elaborate, big event type of cakes. And it's fun. And that's Centering Cakes? Is that the name of your business? Yes, centeringcakes.com. And you got to compete on a, on a cooking show, actually. It was a show I was not aware of. Uh, my wife has seen it called Chopped. Mm-hmm. How, how have they become aware of you? And what was your experience like competing on a cooking show? Well, it's a super fun show. Her and I used to watch that show all the time. I think it's been on for, what, eight seasons, I think. Uh, it's where different chefs fly to New York and they compete against each other who cooks best. But the whole thing to that show is you don't know what you're cooking with. So you have a basket of surprise ingredients and you have to make the best out of it and you genuinely do not know what you have so you only have you know about a minute or two to decide what you want to do and so we we totally kicked butt we won uh, oh you won oh and uh it was a super fun experience yeah wait was that like a, a serial thing was that many episodes what was that is that just one episode what was that like yeah it was just one episode and well you see how it happened was her and i used to watch the show all the time we loved it i wrote to them and I said, you guys have to have my mother-in-law on. She's got a really cool story, and she's a really great chef and also a dessert chef. And so I wrote to them thinking that I'm not going to get answered. But sure enough, they did call us back, and the joke was kind of on me because they also wanted me to be in the show too. And I even artist, like I, I decorated the cakes, and I never really considered myself, you know, a chef. So I was a little bit nervous. But I juggled lemons with oranges on that <laughs> right, show. Right. I had to do that. And what do you think about the competition shows in general? Do you watch America's Got Talent? And are you a fan of that show? No. <laughs> I've been asked to do that show for about six years. And I'm very grateful that I have been. Not taking that lightly. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just that, you know, one year I thought, well, what the heck, I'll I'll do it. I'll do it just for the experience. And I want to promote my business and maybe I can wear, I'll make some beautiful costumes for myself. I also made costumes for a couple of other contestants for that year, for that show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started talking to them and they said, well, you're great. We definitely want you. You, you pass the audition rounds and stuff, but we just need to tweak your story a little bit. And I'm thinking, oh, geez. All right, well, let's hear it. So, Gina, you're going to be a cake baker that works in this bakery that has never performed ever in your life. And you're just, you know, you really want to perform. You're super excited and you've never been on stage. And you're going to come on our stage. You're going to wear like some raggedy old uh, uh, jeans and a tank right. top maybe. And we're going to give you stardom. And I said, thank you, but no thank you. Not interested at all. That's pretty bogus. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a great idea for you to sort of negate your entire career yeah you can't lie nowadays oh absolutely but but furthermore you can't lie nowadays you know you're on social media you can't be like 
I'm just going to lie to my friends that I've never done this before. No, I, I, mean, I did that one time on a, there was a Jay Leno show that I was on where they wanted me to not be a professional, you know, be in the audience, you know, for a single gag, uh-huh. which, which, but to sort of say, make that's your identity and, you know, be on a show like that. And like you're saying, kind of create an entire false narrative is a right. bit much. So you would have been wonderful uh, yeah. on that show, but uh, unfortunately that, that was a bit too much. And I understand that completely. But of course, some jugglers have done very well this year with Victor Key and uh, Passing Zone yeah. very well. And unfortunately, it seems like... And it's a pleasure to watch them. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's the only game in town. I mean, there's really no late night shows that have juggling. Where do you see the future yeah. of juggling going? We're getting towards the end of our podcast. What do you think the, the okay. future has in store for juggling? Well, like I said earlier, we should all keep pushing forward and doing what we love. That's very, very important. Juggling is growing. It's been growing every year for forever, it seems like. And people are discovering all these new cool props and tricks and they're advancing faster. I think we have a very bright future ahead of us. And what I also would like to add, when I went to the IJA uh, this summer, it was very, very nice to see that technical jugglers that don't usually perform are creating themes and stage presence. And they're kind of stepping into the world of performing because for a little while, there's been a bit of a separation where I was considered the circus chick, the circus juggling performer. And then there's the very, very strong technical jugglers, but that wanted nothing to do with performing. And I think it's important to think about the fact that you're not just showing us your tricks. You're also, you know, you also have to present it as well to make everything interesting. And I think that right now, performers and technical jugglers are uniting and creating really fantastic stuff. So, and I wanted to thank you so much for inviting me. I really had a fantastic time. It was very inspiring. And also thank you to my friend, Alan Marvel, um, for bringing me in both of my dudes. Uh, I had such a terrific experience and I'm very grateful. Well, we hope to see you at future festivals. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast with me. Are there, do you have engagements coming up in the future? What's the future for Gina Schwartzman, Christiani? <laughs> I, let me see. I don't do very long contracts right now because I don't want to be away from my son or away from my husband. I don't want to be away from my business that, I've, that I'm growing and growing and that's keeping me busy. So right now what I'm doing is I'm flying out for gala performances and I'm coming back to things I'd love to do. So I just am incredibly grateful that I am able to do to do what I love. And as cheesy as this may sound, you love to juggle. Please keep doing it. Please keep performing. Well, what a great note to end on because I also love juggling mm-hmm. and hopefully the people listening love juggling and we all can love juggling together and in many different ways and in many different styles. But of course, if you want to see one of the greatest jugglers who's ever performed, check out Gina Schwarzmiana Christiani. Check out her wonderful artwork and cake designs and costumes. And thanks again so much, Gina, for being on Drop Everything. Thanks again, and best of wishes to you and Mason Mateo. And I hope to see you Aww. again in 2018. Thanks, Gina. Well, thank you so much. It was such a it was such a great time. It was lovely talking to you. I will talk to you soon. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 54. Big thank you to Gina Schwarzman Christiani for that wonderful conversation. An amazing juggler costume designer, baker, artist, and so much more. Thank you, Gina. All right, let's thank our sponsors one more time, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. 
Let's also thank Zing Toys, makers of the Zing Dama. Thank you, Zing. Find out all about Zing Toys at Zing.com. Well, thank you, everybody. Go out there into the world and drop everything except when you're juggling.